From the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. It's 8 o'clock at night on the Harry Potter film set in Leavesden, Hertfordshire, England. It's 9 o'clock at night in Salzburg, Austria, birthplace of Mozart. And it's 5.30 in the morning in Coobapedi in the middle of the Australian outback. So good evening, good afternoon and good morning. Wherever you are, I'd like to welcome you to Litopia After Dark, the podcast on which we regularly touch the monkey. From our pole position in the local vegan sexual terrorist stri- strip joint. <laughs> Did any of that make any sense to you at all? Well, hopefully it may do over the next 45 minutes or so. As always, we're broadcasting live on Ustream. Join us there if you can, and don't hold back in the chat room. Tonight on Little Paper After Dark, we're pondering the question, if I knew then what I know now, and we'll be asking our writer panellists what insights about the writing process have had the greatest impact on them personally. We're also looking at neologisms, trade rags, and JK, the lawsuit. Here to talk about all this are, from Fort Lauderdale in Florida, writer and lawyer Donna Ballman from Deepest Suffolk, England, writer Carolyn Sutar from Indianapolis in America's Midwest, writer and historian Beverly Gray, and from England's West Country, writer and lecturer Dave Bartram. Donna, you've got a blank sheet of paper in front of you. What comes first? Well, first I'd celebrate because I must have finished revisions on my current manuscript and my agent will be sending it out to publishers. Uh, but when I recover from my champagne hangover, hangover, next I'd pull out my trusty notebook where I, I'd write, I tend to write down all my crazy ideas in this little notebook that I carry with me. So I would start working on my new book, referencing the crazy notebook. Ah, that's very organized. Just what we'd expect from you. Uh, Carolyn, <laughs> what's easier, finding the right idea or doing the writing? You know, this is such a hard question. I think writing, but only just. By a, by a horse's head, really just that. Because if you haven't got the right idea, you're going to get nowhere, absolutely nowhere. So finding the right idea, hard. Mm. Doing the writing afterwards, he. If you're going to ask the question that way around, the writing is easier, but it must be the first time anybody can ever say that. Mm. Well, we, we'd set a lot of precedents on the taper after dark. Beverly, who shouldn't even consider starting to write? People who don't like details. Because regardless of what you're writing, the editing process is a killer if you're not really into the nickly details. Mm -hmm. And Dave, when you get into trouble on the page, how do you get out of it? Uh, It's it's kind of a bit macho, but it's uh, it's kind of Churchillian, really. You just kind of get your head down and plough into it. I have these um, great things I call hack versions, where I'll just copy and paste something and tear it to bits if I'm stuck and just go completely to town on it and see what happens. That's the way to do it. That's, that's, a, that's a man's way. I see you touching, touching the monkey is already causing some commotion in the chat room. Um, you're going <laughs> to have to wait and see, guys. <laughs> uh, well, we've got a good variety of viewpoints there. It looks as like if we're going to be in for a good discussion a bit later on. But first, let's catch up with some of the week's most important news. And in this week's Sydney Morning Herald, linguist Ruth Wainrib introduces us to a new word... A new word, another word for a new word is a neologism. And her new word is the Wattie, 
W-O-T-Y, meaning word of the year. What is it produced by the Lexerati, meaning people who think up and write about new words? Lists of new words are always popular, mainly because dictionary compilers can get lots of publicity out of them. Perhaps the most famous new word list, says Dr. Wainrib, is that announced annually by the American Dialect Society. In recent years, this list has tended to the quirkily eye-catching, such as this year's Ninja Loan and Vegan Sexual. A Ninja Loan is an acronym for No Income, Jobs or Assets. And Vegan Sexual, uh, says uh, Dr. Ruth, is a vegetarian who won't sleep with a carnivore. Um, I don't think that's right, actually. I think it should be a vegan who won't sleep with an omnivore because there are very few carnivores who are human beings. But don't get me started on that. Such new words are likely to have their 15 minutes of fame, she goes on in her article, before dying quickly and invisibly. Their transient glory is largely a function of the power of popular culture being fueled by global media frenzies. Remember, she says, remember metrosexual. This year, Collins Dictionaries, another uh, big dictionary compiler based uh, here in Scotland, announced the new favourites in a media release that included Towie, Bloggerati, Bully Side, Homeland Security, always makes me laugh, Link Rot, Plastic Police and Pointy Head. Oxford's Wattie, the word that they say best chimes, quote, with the feel of its era, is footprint, not the tracks in the sand, but our, Im- our impact on the planet. The Macquarie Dictionary, which is the Australian National Dictionary, has just published its own Wattie, which is pod slurping, pod slurping. It's a noun for the downloading of large quantities of MP3 files or podcasts. And last year's uh, Macquarie's Wattie was uh, a delightful one called Muffin Top. And a, uh, Dr. Ruth says it came in, caused a little stir, and stayed. It's a cheeky term for the fold of female midriff fat that spills over a tight waistband. So graphic is the term, one can't help but visualise the alluded to muffin. There's a huge mother of all muffins that spill obscenely over their overstretched paper wrappings. And other what is that I just briefly uh, bring your attention to are Echopod, an environmentally friendly coffin, Floordrobe, typical adolescence horizontal clothing storage system, Microgrom, never heard of that, Microgrom, which is totally Australian, it's for, for a junior surfer. Uh, man flu, a woman's term for a minor cold experienced unstoically by a man. Manscaping, cosmetic removal of a man's body hair. Nom de womb, a nickname of an unborn baby given by an expectant parent. A smirt, to smirt. It's a blend of smoking and flirting that may go on among people who step outside for a smoke. A tanorexic, someone who's obsessed with tanning. Whale tail, what's visible at the back when a G-string rides up. So, Beverly, do you think these are real words? I love words, made up or otherwise. <laughs> Some of them are quite quite descriptive. I, I personally like link rot. Link rot, yeah, what does that mean? The condition of a neglected website where the hyperlinks no longer work. I have issues with my brain on occasion. I think I suffer <laughs> from that. <laughs> um, Dave, what, what tickles your fancy there? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult, isn't it? There's lots of great stuff there. One of my favorites is nasanal, which is uh, tending towards being a brown nose, which I thought was very... Uh, Pertinent to where I am professionally right now, I think. Yeah, yeah. Not me, but others around me. Yeah. And my, pers- my long-term favourite, it's not particularly new, of course, is Double Think for all the reasons you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Carolyn, neologisms. Up skill. For mm. somebody learning new, new work. I mean, this ludicrous word. And hardscape, as opposed to landscape. Hardscape being a city. 
But I also learned a new one today. I hate the word burglarization. Hmm. And I gather that is a gerund, which is a verbal use of a noun. So I learned something. And here's to all the celebrities around the world. Fantastic. Donna, anything to contribute to this, uh, this fetid mess of words here we have? Well, anyone who's been talking to me this week knows that my favorite one is vegan sexual. I've been using it all week because it makes me laugh so hard. But in the interest of giving equal time to our non-vegan listeners... I suppose we have to. I have a few other words that I'd like to suggest as possible additions to next year's dictionary. Would you like to hear them? Throw them into the melting pot. Let's see if they stick. Okay. Well, I've got carny sexual, which is, of course, people who only have sex with carnival workers... Veggie sexual. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. You're, ta- you're taking the mic now. Veggie sexual. Is this is very serious. Commit- now you're, ju- you're just ruining everything now. <laughs> I have a tendency to not take things too seriously. Um, veggie sexual is people who commit unspeakable acts with vegetables. I've heard of that. Herbie sexual is people who only like to get it on in Volkswagens. <laughs> think about that one for a bit. And omnisexual is people who will do it with anything that moves, for example, Paris Hilton or, you know, most men. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, who can top that? Anybody? No, I'm suffering from link rot. I'm not even going to touch it. I've got nerdgasm here, which is quite good. Yeah, a nerdgasm is a psychological experience that occurs not only in nerds, but anyone involved in a particular subject. And basically, Ooh. if you get very excited over something a bit nerdy, you're having a nerdgasm. Ooh. Have you come across the Devil's Dictionary, Peter? Yeah, I love it. Ambrose Bierce, it's a... Yeah, um, oh, just wonderful. I just love uh, achievement. The death of endeavour and the birth of disgust. <laughs> it's very cynical, isn't it? There's a lot of um, debate over the author's demise. I, I think he just walked out into the Mexican desert one day and was seen no more. Sean yeah. Modra in the uh, chat room has said, omnisexual, one who knows everyone and everything in the biblical sense. Mm-hmm. Well, enough of um, this frivolity. Let's go on to, get on to the serious stuff. Your lawsuits tonight. Um, we briefly mentioned previously um, the as it was then, the pending lawsuit um, that uh, J.K. Rowling and the film studio were bringing against a book, an encyclopedia. Now there's uh, more news come out this week about this, so I think we ought to return to it, because it does raise some very interesting issues, actually. Reuters are saying, billionaire Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling would feel quite exploited if a fan's unofficial encyclopedic companion to the Boy Wizard series was published, she said in court papers made public on Thursday. Um, Steve Vander Ark uh, has written the Harry Potter lexicon, a 400-page reference book based on his popular fan site, www.hplexicon.org. Rowling and Warner Brothers are suing RDR Books, which plans to publish the book, or which plan to publish the book last November. Quote, I am very frustrated that a former fan, a former fan, has tried to co-opt my work for financial gain. Rowling, 42, said, who wrote the seven hugely successful Harry Potter novels in a declaration filed in the US uh, District Court this week. 
I believe, she says, that RDR's book constitutes a Harry Potter rip-off of the type I've spent years trying to prevent, and that both I, as the creator of this work, uh, uh, this world, and fans of Harry Potter would be exploited by its publication. Um, she goes on to say, I feel intensely protective, firstly, of the literary world I spent so long creating, and secondly, of the fans who bought my books in such large numbers, said the writer ranked by Forbes as the world's 48th most powerful celebrity. Mr. Van der Ark is a librarian. He's spoken at conferences all over the world. Is obviously an enormous fan, although uh, she calls him a former fan. Reuters say the company and Van der Ark have said the book would only promote the sale of Rowling's work and that Van der Ark's website, used by 25 million visitors, uh, had been called a great site by Rowling herself. So, Carolyn, you're JK. Oh. What, yes, what? Yeah, indeed. What do you What do you make uh, of all this? I mean, what would you be inclined to do? Anything differently? I'm interested by this because I was discussing it earlier. I mean, on the BBC uh, news site, the lawyers for RDR Books said it was a legitimate literary activity. Well, that can't be right. I mean, Don will correct me later. I'm sure on all this, but she has copyright for everything. So, Terry Pratchett co-opted with some friends to produce. The lexicon, I can't exactly, well, Discworld. Yeah. Everything to do with it. It's a marvellous thing. Yeah. And you wonder why he didn't contact her, unless she has a plan to do it herself, which it goes on to say she might do. In a way, I want to know more. I want to know why he didn't contact her. I want to know why she's doing, and I mean, why is the publishers going ahead with it? It seems to be a can of worms, huge can of worms. I, I feel for her. But, you know, if I'm JK, I'd probably say they're my characters. It's my world. It's my book. If anyone's going to do it, I will do it. Well, in which case, why haven't I? Mm. Well, she said she's going to. Um, that's, that's one of her objections, actually. She said she's going to write her own definitive Harry Potter encyclopedia, which would include material that did not make it into the novels, and she was going to donate the proceeds to charity. That's, that's what she's, she's saying. Uh, and go ahead and do it. But it's, it, it all seems just a little bit a little bit toys out of the tram because it's such a wonderful idea. She should have been doing it for the past four or five years mm. when she'd finished the other books. You know, she could have done it um, in tandem with them. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's not going to harm her because she can still do it and she'll still make an awful lot of money from it. I was in a children's bookshop yesterday and um, I noticed a fairly new book there which was pretty much the same thing as far as I could see, except it was uh, devoted to the works of Philip Pullman. And I don't think there's been any trouble over that. It could be wrong, though. Um, Beverly, if you were, you were in the JK shoes, what would your reaction be at this stage? Well, I, I think I keep going back to most of the material. My understanding is most of the material that, that was going to be in this lexicon has already appeared on the website. If she was that concerned and that protective, one would have thought she would have wanted the website shut down years ago. I, I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of with Carolyn, though, in that it seems to me if, if this was a fan of whom she thought highly, make it a joint effort. Hmm. That way you get the best of both worlds. I, it, Because from a fan's perspective... This is just something else that, that's a tribute to her and the world she has created. I mean, there have been many uh, things spun off the Oz books, uh, Winnie the Pooh, there have been some things. Uh, you know, I, I, it's a terrible muddle. I, I, I feel for both sides because mm. I can see right and wrong on both sides. Mm. 
Uh, Chanamodra says in the chat room, not many cases of someone who, quote, sues for charity. Ruby Tuesday says, but is it her or has she been advised to do this if she agrees to do, uh, if she agrees to one, it, to one, would it not set a precedent? Perhaps she's been told to do this to avoid others following suit. And uh, Carol Estra says, happen she has, Ruby. I think I've got the accent right. Donna, let's come to, to your expert opinion here. Well, there's already dozens of these types of books on Harry Potter. If you Google them or run down Amazon on Harry Potter, you're going to find a bunch of these books already. So I'm not sure why she's picking on this one. Are they, are they encyclopedias? Scholar- are they, are they you know, as definitive as this appears it's, it's going to be? Well, they're all uh, analyses of Harry Potter in one way or another, and a scholarly analysis is fair game. So I guess I'd have to see it, but it seems like it's more an analysis of Harry Potter. It's not um, anything that's uh, taking her words um, and using them in in a different work. Um, It's something that's taking knowledge about the way her world works and explaining it. So I think it's fair game. If I were her, I'd be counting my money. And it's not, not taking I, her, her words. You're right. It's not taking her words, but it is taking her intellectual property. It is taking the the stuff that she's created. And crucially, it, it is using a, a trademark. So, you know, in a way, if if she and they, Warners, don't take action on this, I mean, what what's, what's going to happen next? There's going to be a whole series of Harry Potter novels, isn't it, written by somebody else, published by somebody else. Well, I think that's different because you're taking uh, the work that she's created and you're doing a knockoff work as opposed to doing an analysis of the work, which is different. It's a, it's a scholarly analysis and uh, people do that on all kinds of books. Uh, literature departments would be shut down if you couldn't do that. If you have a look at the website, actually, it's a very interesting website. I mean, it's a fantastic fan site. I think most, well, you know, 99.9% of authors will be just delighted to have a fan site of this kind of um, depth and obviously she has said in the past she has been pleased with it um, but if you look at it I mean it, it is incredibly exhaustive I mean it, it there's not much you could add to it it just goes on and on and on in such detail and if you're going to take all of that information you basically are taking the world that she's created an interesting little point though um, I was looking looking around there on on the fan site today we'll put the um, the link and the show notes, which will be up um, in a day or two after the podcast has been transmitted. Um, if you look on the fan site, you'll, you'll see an open letter to JK, which I was expecting to be a little bit bitter, actually, sort of saying, ah, why, why are you suing your fans? But it's not. Um, it, it's just asking her lots and lots and lots of more, even more detailed questions. But there is one rather pointed thing here that I'll just um, read out to you. And in the, in the open letter, it says, um, quote, speaking of that official timeline, uh, there is some pretty c- convincing evidence that they, I think that means the uh, the film studio, they took the timeline directly from the lexicon. The lexicon is the website. Do you know anything about that? That's a question to JK. Uh, the folks at Warner said that they took a timeline and gave it to you for review. Was the timeline they gave you from the lexicon's calendars? In other words, this website is so comprehensive that they're, they're, they're suggesting that the, the film studio took some material from that website to, then to, uh, sent back to JK for, um, uh, for checking. Sounds like a nice counterclaim. It does actually. It sounds like an element to it, doesn't it? But ultimately, it, it, it surely it's it's all about a trademark struggle. Um, and you know, if you create something, should you not ultimately be in a position to say, "Yes, I want. I'm okay for that to be used in that way," or "No, I'm not." 
um, you know, surely you shouldn't have to go to court to 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 prove your ownership, should you? We're going to go back into the the early days of you know uh, no copyright laws when authors were exploited left, right, and centre. But isn't that kind of what the web's doing to us, throwing us back into that days because so much of it is. is unregulated it's it's the wild west still the internet and it's seems to me it's awfully hard to police anything uh, especially when you have uh, i mean if you go on youtube they've got you know songs old tv shows everything you can download and i would imagine there's no royalty being paid on any of that stuff hmm. So this may be opening a new frontier for copyright law. It's the same struggle the music industry has been facing the last few years with all the downloads. Mm. Well, there's a a few things, really. Um, The first is I don't know whether they're actually violating her trademark because they've written it in um, Old English type and her typeface for the Harry Potter name is not Old English. So I don't think it's her trademark. Uh, The second thing was I just saw a thing on MSN. Come on, Bill, where's the money? Um, about some American professor claiming that some readers of Harry Potter become so engaged in the series and the ancillary world that grew out of it that they report behaviours that truly fit definitions of addiction or dependence. Wow. He's claiming that Harry Potter is as addictive as drugs, which could explain <laughs> oh, no. you know, you know, what it's all about. Oh, my goodness. I can, I can see the, the lawsuits lining up there, can't you? Harry Potter addiction. Yeah, it's great. Harry Potter ruined my life. I had a job, I had a family, and then I, you know, I little bits at first, watched a few minutes with the kids. Before I knew it, I was meeting kids in back alleys buying their second-hand coffee. <laughs> you know, and then I was mainlining. It was, and then I just, that's all I could do, just to get, you know, in the morning, to get out my pizza, just to be able to get up and go to work. Yeah. You can just buy see it, coffee. can't you? Yeah. Buy a new, buy a new coffee, coffee. Keep it a paper bag, sniff it. Yeah, burglarizing people to um, oh, <laughs> to, to fund your habit for new editions. Oh, Sniff dear. them, get the glue, and all of that. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's that, that's a crazy thing. Um, so you can, if that's the case, then that clearly explains why. But I don't think they are violating um, a trademark because they're not using the same type. It's a completely different thing. They don't claim it's her work. Uh, I think I don't think she has much of a leg to stand on. It's quite funny. There's a little quote from her, isn't it, on the website? This is such a great site, my natural home, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think I think she'll be repenting that. I mean, I I think behind the scenes, this is actually really really difficult because um, I'll bet that there is a a clause in the film deal that was done saying the Warners have the right uh, to to protect the intellectual property that they are acquiring and in any lawsuit the the author would would join them um, Warners will almost certainly well yeah uh, without, without a shadow of a doubt will cover JK's costs so in a way this may well be a lawsuit that she's getting into because somebody else has pressed the button now if that were the case um, she's got no option the only option she's got really is to turn around to uh, the studio and say um, I don't want to be part of this. And then that raises the extraordinary spectre of perhaps the studio taking action against her. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a nightmare scenario, really. Donna, do you want to give us a final sense of perspective on this? Well, it's good for the lawyers. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> 
The only I've been desperately trying to find a, a snippet I found today, and I thought it was so intriguing that this all blew up in the news again today. Uh, and I can't find where it is, but it was that J.K. has been overtaken in England as the most uh, bought children's author. And I thought, how intriguing that uh, that should come out. By whom? I'm just trying to find it, Peter. I can't find it. All oh, right. Well, uh, if you do, I mean, just, you know, just uh, stick it in later on. It'd be interesting. Finding it. But I just thought if we're into spin, huh, and there's no such thing as bad publicity, yeah. then bringing this out on the day that you're not quite... Well, I don't know. Dave came pretty close to it, actually, just now, I think. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, Okay, well, you know, that is undoubtedly something. I mean, it's, it's just a sticky, sticky situation that I think is going to get even stickier, actually, and there could easily be nasty rebound, and who knows. PR people and lawyers will be burning lots of midnight oil and getting nice and wealthy over it. We will continue to follow. All right, uh, moving on to trade magazines, trade rags, trade rags. Galley Cat, Ron Hogan writes uh, this week about, he, um, he, he's been writing about this thing that we covered actually last week, Read Business Information, um, disposing of the American Publishers Weekly. It's the, the organ of the uh, book trade in the States. Um, reader getting rid of it. And... Rod Hogan had a, an anonymous correspondent, actually, who was a literary agent, not me, definitely not me, an American, I think, um, who, who writes this, and it's quite interesting. He says, Dude, Publishers Weekly has already lost to Publishers Marketplace. I'll, ex- I'll explain what Publishers Marketplace is in a moment. He emailed me, uh, it says Ron Hogan, yesterday afternoon. The PW, that's Publishers Weekly brand, <clears throat> is almost irrelevant among anyone in book publishing under 50 years old. Um, Publishers Marketplace doesn't do much original reporting, he continues, but his daily newsletter and multifaceted web offerings are much more useful to most of us in the industry than Publishers Weekly, thin reported content. All they offer now that distinguishes them are the reviews, which anyone with a few bucks could start producing tomorrow. So here you've got an interesting situation where you've got the, you know, the, um, the eminent journal of a particular industry, which is publishing. Publishers Weekly has been established for a long time, highly respected. Um, their opinion could you know, certainly in the past and maybe still now make or break books and you've got a young upstart which is um, entirely online called Publishers Marketplace I subscribe to it I don't know how much it costs I think it's about $150 a year and it's really useful it's a mess of a website it looks like um, nothing on earth it's horrible to look at but it's a big database and it contains lots and lots of information that isn't easily accessible or even accessible at all on the Publishers Weekly uh, website and in view of um, Reed's disposal of uh, Publishers Weekly and indeed lots of other magazines in that particular part of Reed, I'm just wondering to myself now, and I'd like some answers, please, if we can provide them, what impact that's, that ha- that, and that's going to have on not just writers and, and authors in specifically this industry, but generally, because we've all got a mixed background here, apart from you being authors, you've all, um, you've all done or are doing something else, some other profession, in which there will be a trade magazine. So is the trade magazine in your, uh, your profession um, still as important and relevant as it once was, or is it an endangered species? I don't usually read the magazines. What I rely on are the e-versions, like Publishers Weekly has uh, something called the Children's Bookshelf, which comes to me once a week. Um, Writer's Digest has a great e-newsletter. There's something called the Children's Book Insider and the Guide to Literary Agents all have really nice e-newsletters. So those are what I read all do you the time. S- do you pay for those or um, you just get them free? No, absolutely free. Yeah. Right to my email. 
Carol Russell says on the chat site, our company moved into the old offices of our trade magazine when they sold they sold to VNU, which is a, a big uh, magazine publisher. Dave, you got any any thoughts on this? Uh, we don't really have a trade magazine. We have the the, the TES, I suppose, is the thing that most educators read, or or the um, the higher education one. Um, I, I always love the ones when you go for for an Indian, you know, Chandori magazine. Yeah, with, with all the awards and the um, restaurant ads. And that's that's my favourite one. I think it sums up trade magazines beautifully. Actually, it's a kind of glossy piece of um, uh, almost total vacuity. It's great. I, I just I've given up reading them. I I don't know what have I got news for you is going to do when you give up sort of the chicken or the poultry farmers weekly. Yeah, good point. So, yeah, but uh, I I love them. Some of them are amazing. And uh, in my in my old career in events, I used to read marketing, and uh, it was fascinating. But I didn't. It didn't seem relevant to me. That's the problem. And now that you can get all this stuff online. I think they're going to disappear, which I hate to say about anything. I, I think the writing's on the wall, too. Well, in, in the industry I work in, we have so many engineers of so many different types that, you know, the, the chemical guys all use their trade magazines. And in engineering, the the trade magazines have a lot of up-to-date, useful things. They're kind of like the science, science journals or the medical journals. It's... I think there there's a lot of practical application, and that's why they still seem to remain fairly strong. When I, I remember, uh, I sound like an old man, uh, but it's not long ago. It's just you know a few years ago, really, two or three years ago, four or five maximum, uh, when a good review in the UK uh, sort of equivalent of Publishers Weekly, which is the bookseller, um, self-styled organ of the book trade, a good review could uh, make a book, or conversely, it could break a book. But it doesn't seem like it's it's the case anymore, um, and I think a lot of the reason for that actually is that there's so much centralisation now, as far as buyers are concerned. Um, in the children's area, there are probably two or three really important people in in the trade who um, whose opinion really is very significant, and they can make or break books. Um, but since the independent trade is slowly um, decreasing, really in this country, and some some people will put it stronger than that. Um, there's less and less need for a for a magazine to get the message out to hundreds or thousands of booksellers each week. But there we go. Um, let's move on to another report this week uh, that suggests that this is a rather obscure item actually, but it tickled my fancy. Um, that suggests that the Mozart effect may be a fraud. And if you remember, the Mozart effect is um, uh, is playing Mozart for your designer baby. That's uh, usually in the womb. Um, is supposed to improve his IQ and therefore help him to get into an ex- exclusive uh, preschool. Um, and on his blog, Chandon uh, Brunch. I don't know. Gosh, I can't, I can't read my own writing. <laughs> um, the link will be in the show notes. Um, he, he writes, of course, we're all better off for listening to Mozart purely for the pleasure of it. However, one wonders that if playing Mozart sonatas for little Hillary or Jason could boost their intelligence, what would happen if other composers were played in their developmental time? 
And he suggests uh, these effects, the list effect, L-I-S-Z-T, the list effect, um, in which the child speaks rapidly and extravagantly but never really says anything important. Or the Wagner effect, uh, where the child becomes a megalomaniac and may eventually marry his sister. Or the Mahler effect, where the child continually screams at great length and volume that he's dying. Or finally, the, the Shostakovich effect, in which the child appears to work Work diligently, but on careful examination, you find his work mostly consists of disguised remarks about how much he hates you. So, <laughs> so sort of leading on from that, um, it struck me there are actually two types of writers. There are those who who do listen to music, in fact, require music, or indeed any other background noises as they work, and others who require perfect silence. Um, what sort are you, Beverly? It depends on my mood, because sometimes I want it really quiet, and other times I put on movie soundtracks. Movie soundtracks? I, I don't... Well, with, you, you mean know, with, with words and, and dialogue? Well, you have dialogue playing? Um, not dialogue, just the music. The okay. Music. Right. But um, I, I do less and less of that, I think probably because I work in a very noisy office, so now when I write, I want it quiet, just because it's such a nice relief. Donna, what do you listen to, if anything? Well, I don't use music because I find it too distracting, but uh, oddly, I write with mostly TV in the background or, or sometimes silence. Um, I don't know why I don't find TV more distracting than music, but um, it, it provides me some nice background noise without distracting me too much. Yeah, listen to music when I'm writing. If I really get into the writing, I tend to forget to you know, change the music and so on. But it's usually fairly stirring stuff. Uh, been Marla, maybe, oh, yeah. but and equally Marla to Motorhead or Metallica. It depends what I'm doing. I find the kind of the the louder and the more um, visceral it is, the better it works with the writing. Really. Wow, that's extraordinary. Uh, I find that difficult to understand, actually. Um, Carolyn, what about you? Um, yes, I'm a noisy person, which will surprise you. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, sit in a, a cafe. Uh, in a little Suffolk village, mm. it's bright white, which helps, and a lot of a lot of buzz, a lot of energy in there for some reason. And a few years ago, I would have worked in silence, not going anywhere, but it seems to really help me. Sitting there, great company, good jazz going on. They let me sit at a table by myself, leave me alone, and I write, and it seems to work. Wow. I found um, the J.K. bit. Oh yeah, do do tell. Well, it's in the Guardian. And it's to do with uh, lending rates and how many books that have gone out of the libraries in the UK. Mm. And it's about the payments that authors receive. In PLR. The- and rolling um, nowhere. Wow. The UK's most borrowed book is Patricia Cornwall's At Risk, although the author's combined loans only have put her at number 21 in the overall list. With only seven novels to her credit, J.K. posts at number 107 despite Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Princess showing as the most borrowed children's book. Hmm. Rowling's comparatively low position is perhaps, it continues, emblematic of the difference between the flighty bestseller, bestseller charts and the solidity, solidity excuse me, of the library lending list, which prioritizes authors with a weighty backlist. None of Rowling's fellow top 10 best-selling authors of 2007 make the top 100 of the library list. I'm intrigued at this. Yeah, well, um, Carol Russell says because people actually own Harry Potter. Um, I, I tend to agree with that. I think, you know, if you're a Harry Potter freak, you, you're going you're gonna to try and... You're, you're going to beg on the back streets to get it, aren't you? 
<laughs> or worse. <laughs> but let's not go down that alley again. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Kathleen Wilson topped the uh, children's. Yeah, she, and she has done for years, actually. It's, uh, it's yeah, very interesting. She's, yeah, she's built a solid backlist, and it, it really shows. There's, there's, there's an interesting it. statistic that um, Kerry Pratchett is actually Britain's most shoplifted author. Really? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that says about um, Terry Pratchett. Presumably they're addicts as well, but they're not prepared to burglarize to find their habit. So they're still. Well, you know, Terry Pratchett's probably someone who actually can appreciate the humor of it. Well, uh, sort of seeking fairly neatly into our uh, final item before we get into the, the main uh, tofu of the evening. What does your bookshop, uh, bookshop, what does your bookshelf say about you? Um, it's been revealed that Hollywood celebrities employ consultants to make their bookshelves look suitably intelligent. And how sad is that? Ezra Klein says in The American Prospect, he says, Bookshelves are not for displaying books you've read. Those books go in your office or near your bed or on your Facebook profile. Rather, the books on your shelves are there to convey the type of person you would like to be. Um, and bookshelves are, he says, a medium of social interaction. Mm, I wish, they, wish that were true. A format for the performance of self. So if books really do say something about you, I'd like to know what's on your shelves, please, panellists, uh, particularly those books that you've bought mainly for show. Come on, be honest. Well, I've read just about everything I have, but I, I have a section for the signed books that's off limits. Actually, usually I've read them and then get them signed because we have the Miami uh, Book Fair that, right. that everybody comes through. But my absolute coolest on the shelf are the books signed by Martin Luther King and Eleanor right. Roosevelt, which... Yeah. I have not read, and those are off limits. And then the other thing I have for show on my bookshelves is about a zillion photos, including some with Bill and Hillary Clinton. And I'll bite. They're my touching the monkey photos. Yeah. Uh, we, I knew we'd get around to explaining that. Actually, we haven't quite explained it. Donna, explain the phrase touching the monkey right now. Okay. Well, um, people were giving me a hard time because I went to see um, – I got my photo taken with Bill Clinton over the weekend. And um, we, we have quite a few of those because I was actually involved in his – first campaign down here as his legal counsel and um, my husband and I were watching probably a couple of years ago a show and I think it was on the Discovery Channel and it showed uh, chimps and their social interaction and the way they worked is the um, alpha chimp goes around and he touches everybody in the group and the more he touches them the more status they have in the group. And so we kind of turned to each other and said, well, that's just like politics. It's like everybody getting in line to get photos with these elected officials and um, I guess celebrities too. And so whenever we do go to do those photo ops, we uh, say to each other that we have to go touch the monkey. Wow. So, yeah. Um, so I suppose Monica Lewinsky would be very high sort of profile monkey, really, wouldn't she? If she was a monkey, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, have I said the wrong thing? Oh. <laughs> Beverly, bring us back on subject quickly. <laughs> oh, I, my bookcases are very eclectic. I, I try to keep the children's books together and the history books together. Um, every book on there I've read, either it was a, a textbook from college or just a well. Oh, this is the trouble with authors. They read all the books they've got. They only buy books they want to read and they read all the books they've got. There's, there's nothing there yeah. for status, is there? <laughs> oh, I have no status. Right. 
I, I don't have any monkey pictures. <laughs> no monkey pictures. <laughs> Dave. If you wanted status, we'd be actors. I guess that actors. means I'm dead <laughs> Dave, you must have some monkey pictures somewhere. Uh, well, we're not on public display, obviously. Right. Yeah, they're for private perusal. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> as you can imagine. Now, um, I've actually, my, the problem with my bookshelf is it, it looks like it's for show, but it isn't because of the whole art thing. Oh, yeah, of course. There's, there's lots of fairly kind of weighty tomes and monographs. Yeah. You know, Matisse and Patrick Heron and Medigliani and Bonnard and and so on and it looks like we're being remarkably pretentious but they're just reference books for us really mm. um, and then, then like, they've got pretty pictures in them that we can look at when we're not busy with the monkey pictures yeah so, well, uh, well no one's going to no, no one's going to fuss up to this are they Karen and oh, oh absolutely not well I bought some big coffee table books thinking I was going to make a big statement about design I've never read any of them I have to confess so there you are, the big confession. Okay. My coffee table books never been opened. Okay, I, I'm going to I'm going to give you one, and I think it's probably one that will ring a bell for everyone who's ever bought it, which is a brief history of time. Ah. Uh, yeah. I've only ever met one person who who who, who, who um, has read it, and that was the editor. I've read it. Oh, two. <laughs> <laughs> I read half of it. Yeah. Well, then I got really confused. good. It's yeah, it's really good, good, but I. I it's it's like string theory. I understand it when they're explaining it to me, but the minute I'm away from the person explaining it, it goes right out of my head. It doesn't adjust. Yeah. I've got the, the the elegant universe, which is Brian Green on string theory. That's quite groovy, actually, because it's so mm-hmm. bonkers. It's better than any fantasy you could ever read. Oh yeah, I've re- I've read it. it. It's it's tremendous. But again, it you know I I kind of understand it, but I don't understand it so that I can explain it. And that that's very aggravating, but I, I don't know if it's I don't have the vocabulary or what the problem is, but I just cannot hang on to the theory. Mm. Yeah, well, there was that famous quote by Max Planck or someone similar, wasn't there, that anybody who says that they understand uh, quantum theory doesn't understand it. Yes, who thinks they understand, that's absolutely right. Uh, Cal Astra says, my husband read it, that's a brief history of time, and dismissed it as too simplistic. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, he's got to write his own book, obviously. And Chona Modra says, so what does it say about you if you have nothing on your bookshelf but a Kindle? And of course, that is the way we're headed, isn't it? Which is rather unfortunate. Isn't it? Let's move on to the, to the main subject tonight, which is, if I knew then what I know now, um, it's the sort of how to write 101. Um, I've recently been recommending Stephen King's on writing to um, all the authors I've, I've been working with. Um, and I don't recommend many books, actually, just just a few, three or four maximum. Because um, most, most books about writing aim to help writers, in my view, confuse. Um, and although there's a, you can often find a little nugget or two in them, um, I, I, I tend to think most of them are very sort of so-so, really. Stephen King's book is 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 a, is a jolly good read. It's partly autobiographical, and that's that's a pretty good story. But it also is intensely involved in the writing process itself. The 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 how to, the how to put that word in front of that one and, and make a make a the, the impression you want to make. Um, so I I really do do recommend that to everyone. I think it's a good read. I mean, I think it's been an enormous worldwide bestseller as well. So um, tonight, I'd like to sort of turn it round onto the panel and ask them uh, what what were their their first lessons in writing. 
writing, the things that they really wished that they did know when they started out, um, but do know now. Carolyn, would you like to take a stab at this first? You've got that blank sheet of paper in front of you. My blank sheet of paper in front of me, I wish I'd known... I wish I'd paid more attention at school to the real basics of grammar. Mm. I really do. And the best piece of advice I was given was by my agent, who said, remove your brain. What? To write. And I know exactly what that meant. It said, stop thinking, stop going so deep, keep it simple, keep it short and simple. And absolutely perfect. But the grammar, ah, oh, I wish. Can I go back, listen all over again? Oh, it's a toughie, isn't it? Um, one of the best ones, was, funnily enough, was a, a basic grammar primer for a secondary school for about 30 years ago. So it would be considered a fairly incomprehensible text today. Uh, and that's great because it explains all those funny things about colons and semicolons and so on. It's very useful. I think Story is a great book, which was recommended to me. Um, the one I find particularly interesting is the the source text for the the whole writer's journey thing you know the um the Campbell hero with a thousand faces because I think there is a depth to that whole concept that is largely lacking in the the kind of modernist interpretations of it, and only when you read Campbell do you really get the meat of it and I think that was very very helpful. The best advice I ever got um Oh, that's a tricky one because I've had lots of good advice and probably listened to lots of daft advice as well. Well, exactly. Uh, I, I think the the best advice I got, I think, was to just get to the point. Hmm. Don't mess about. Just say what you've got to say in the most straightforward and honest way you can. And don't worry about the flowery writing and the clever phrasing and the intertextuality and all of those other clever literary devices. Just get to the point. Yeah. Beverly, uh, uh, Dave says, don't bother about the flowery writing. Do you agree? Yeah, because uh, I had that same advice given to me, which was, you know, don't, when you're first starting a story, don't spend a lot of time overthinking it. Just, you know, let the intuition take over. If the characters are there, they'll they'll write themselves. Then go back and do the grammar and everything with the editing. But if you get too technical to begin with, you kill your story. Well, I think the best advice is, is to just keep writing because if you want to be a writer, you have to write all the time and keep practicing. And most of what you're going to write at the beginning is garbage, but it's all good practice. And I don't think there's anything I've ever written that I regretted writing. Mm. Um, my weakest part, uh, I think, to this day is is developing structure um, starting with the bare bones of a plot structure and making sure it makes sense is a good way to start. And I really never started that way. I'm just learning that. Um, I used to be a Stephen King type of writer, pick up the computer and start writing. And it's been pointed out to me that I waste a lot of time restructuring. So now I'm trying to outline first, which still gives me fits, but it really does help move along uh, the writing more quickly. Um, I find I still veer wildly once I start writing from the outline, but um, the, the books that I would recommend besides Stephen King's On Writing are Chris Vogler's The Writer's Journey, which are almost opposites because Stephen King really does advocate picking up and starting, starting writing and 
Yeah. Vogler's more on structure, and I, I, I think Stephen King gets away with writing that way because he has the structure in his head. He used to teach writing, so he knows what the basic structure is, and so he probably follows it in its head. I think that most of us who don't know how to structure a story need Vogler or somebody to help us uh, develop some basic plot structure. Hmm. Hey Dave, um, just come because you 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 teach, you're a lecturer. I mean, do you think writing is something? I don't know. I mean, let's, it's an art form, and uh, let's expand it more generally. I mean, is anything artistic something that can be taught? Really? It's, it's the, the way I kind of explain it to my students is that you can teach all of the technicalities that you wish. You know, be they in the visual arts or in any other arts medium. You know, you can teach people to draw. People say they can't draw. Yes, you can be taught how to draw mm. because it's manual skills. It's like riding a bike. What you can't be taught is to have the desire to make the artistic statement in the first place. And I think that's the kind of the thing that separates the artistic spirit, if you like, from, from everybody else is that they have a will to do it already in them. And you can't instill that. It's either there or it isn't. You can sometimes draw it out because the person is unaware that they've got it. But you can't actually teach them to be that way. They either are that way or they aren't. But you can teach all the necessary skills, which is probably why we see some fairly diabolical books on the shelves these days. People have learned the skills and just applied them to a formula and come up with X. It's like the, I saw in a blog the other day, they're talking about in a few years' time there is good enough software to churn out perfectly acceptable narratives uh, without the intercession of, of a writer. Uh, that's just structure and content just put together in a certain order by an algorithm, isn't it? Yeah. And that's kind of what can be taught, but the creative original bit can't be taught. I'll have to be ominous. <laughs> Sorry, was that the devil coming in? <laughs> You're early. <laughs> Either that or Charles Dickens rolling. <laughs> I said midnight. God, literacy in the in the netherworld, it's appalling. <laughs> I'm actually thinking about buying some software, speaking of software, to help me with plot structure and outlining. I'm wondering if anybody out there has some good suggestions. Dave, you usually have some good ideas about this because I think we've discussed it quite a lot. I I gave up because I just spent too much time trying to make the software work (laughs) rather than writing. So, you know, that just tells you a lot about me, really. Oh, software and stuff. The only thing, I, I use a very good thing. It's a Mac-only thing called Scrivener, which isn't a structure thing. It's just an organizer. It's great. I've looked at some of the structuring stuff, but it's um, too formulaic. It just kind of invites you to just do a, a you know a die-hard four with everything you write, which isn't particularly, but it might be your thing, but it's not my thing. Well, that's what I'm afraid of. Is is that it'll veer me in the wrong direction? Uh, I I am just getting very frustrated with with structure right now. So I I guess I'm looking at, at books and I'm and I'm maybe looking at some software or something that maybe can help me with that. I like the writer's journey. Um, I, it really helped me focus and and sort of center myself back on what it was all about. And you know, I found myself doing the uncourse routine. As I got through some of it, uh, it was a good, it was good. I'm yet to read the Stephen King, I must say, 
but I'm looking forward to doing Any it. Any final words of advice, um, guys, from Neophytes? Never give up and never surrender. So for Be it. aware it's a very lonely, lonely life. <laughs> it is, isn't it, actually? <clears throat> the, yeah, the, the, well, the writer's it, life can be, can be very uh, isolating, I think. Well, it's just the, the amount of time spent doing it, Peter, because nobody, I, I don't care. I, there are very few people who can do it perfectly straight out of the gate, and you, you have to be aware that, one, not everybody's going to absolutely fall in love with the, the thoughts in your head because it's a translation process. You're translating those thoughts in your head onto a piece of paper or onto a computer screen, and a lot of times the translation just does not happen. So that the characters that are very alive and vivid to you and beautiful in your head, well, other people can't see it. So, so there, it's a constant going back and, and polishing and fixing and trying to get those marvelous ideas hmm. out where the rest of the world can see them. I think it requires that, a split viewpoint. I think you've got to be able to write the words on the page or on the screen, of course, and then come back to them um, moments later if you can and read them as with fresh eyes and if you can do that i think that's that's, that's, that's very difficult very difficult yeah, yeah. my final one would be do the research really know why you're about to spend hours and you know maybe months of your life mm. writing something has it been done before why is yours different and doing all that sort of marketing stuff that doesn't really occur to people mm. And that it isn't worth just saying, oh, but it's going to be the next Harry Potter. Well, really, why? And is that relevant? And do you want to be? And why is yours going to be different? I think there's a lot of marketing that people don't go into. Well, and I, I think to follow up on that, Carolyn, you have to take a step even further back. And why do you want to write at all? Are you yeah. writing as a profession? Are you writing because you want to be rich and famous? Are you writing because you just saw a glorious sunrise and you just want to capture that and put it on your blog and if someone reads it, fine. If not, who cares? I enjoyed it. I, I think there are an awful lot of people who don't even know why they write. Hmm. You know, and I, I think a lot of them, if they're very honest, it usually comes down to, I want to be J.K. Rowling. I want to be rich and famous. This is one of the avenues for, for you know, the fame. But it's an incredibly strong and, instinct, isn't it? I mean, this is why all those oh, yeah. sites that, you know, <clears throat> we discussed well, last well, week exist. Like, it's it's vanishing children, publishing. But we all want attention. So, you know, and, the, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I didn't mean to imply that there was. But I, I think for the heartbreak side of it, hmm. because realistically, most of us will never reach that that point and well, that's what jk thought of course from from going completely nuts it helps if you know why you're doing it or maybe you're wanting to write a book for your children that's great too but i i think it helps to put that in perspective just so before you invest all the time in it you at least know why you're doing it hmm. and what you hope to get out of it as you your little personal soul i absolutely agree and i don't think a lot of people do that you know bev i think a lot of people have got the idea from seeing all the programs on jk that really all she did was sit in a cafe every day and drink coffee and out came his books and yeah really oversimplifies everything that went on you know okay. well i i blame computers it, too because it used to be an author you know you you might know how to type most of them didn't yeah. 
write it in longhand, typist types it, then you have to go back and redo and redo. There is a world of difference between retyping a page on a typewriter and just hitting delete, backspace, and retyping on on the computer screen. There's a lot less work involved doing that. And where a lot of uh, writers would kind of fall by the wayside just from the sheer mass of the work involved, computer makes it a lot easier to go a lot farther so that that kind of winnowing out is not happening at the lower level where the discouragement sets in. People are going a lot farther with, with uh, getting their, their manuscripts written. Their, people are completing manuscripts where before, you know, maybe one out of five would have actually completed a manuscript. Yeah. So... Well, if you want to, want to get a sense of that, you should uh, Google word per hect, uh, and it comes up with a, a simulacrum of Microsoft Word, and you have to write on the back of a fag packet or a receipt, and it's in scruffy handwriting, and delete just scribbles out the previous character, and help is things like go and make a cup of tea, or um, now it's time for a nap, <laughs> or go for a walk. You know, those are the hints and tips. It's great. Just Google it. It was part of the Turner Prize many years ago by Tokomo Takahashi, and it's that been left wonderful. online. And it, it, it actually reminds you of the great fun of the fact when you can't just delete something and write something else, and it's all yeah. scruffy. Hmm. It's good fun. That's fantastic. Word per hect. That's fantastic. Well, look, um, we're going to link to that in the in the show notes um, this week. And I think on, on that note, it's a very good time to say... Um, Thank you very much, everybody, for helping us to touch the monkey this week. And touching the monkey indeed were Beverly Gray, Donna Ballman, Dave Bartram, and our special guest, Carolyn Sutar. So thank you very much, guys, and a special happy anniversary to our podcast officer, Ruby Tuesday, who has a special anniversary this weekend. And therefore, she won't be in the show notes, and I've got to instead. <laughs> thank you very much, everybody. <laughs> it's been another great show. Who knows? We might just have inspired the next J.K. Rowling. And let's do it all again next week. Bye, everybody. Night night, everyone. Bye. 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 Well, that was the show, and this is the Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Litopia Writers Colony. The main website address is www.litopia.com. And we also have a microsite purely dedicated to our podcasts. The address is podcast.litopia.com. There's no www, just type podcast.litopia.com, and you'll find it. That's also where you'll find show notes and links referenced in this episode, all carefully compiled by our podcast officer for your benefit. How are you currently listening to this podcast? The best way is to subscribe to it using iTunes. iTunes is free software, and it works both on the Mac and the PC. Once you subscribe in this way, every show will be automatically downloaded for you the moment it's available. Full instructions on the Litopia website. And talking of iTunes, if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a good review on our iTunes page. We rely on word of mouth to promote the podcast and really would appreciate your help to tell people about us. On the website, podcast.litopia.com, you'll find a neat little widget that you can easily add to your MySpace page, your blog, or your social network. Just click on the button for full instructions. It's easy to do, it looks cool, and it helps us too. We're constantly working to make the show and the website better and better. One new feature allows you to sign up to have our fulsome show notes delivered automatically to your mailbox, again, as soon as the show is released. 
Speaking of feedback, we want to hear from you and we'd be delighted to receive your comments and suggestions. There are several ways to do this. Choose whatever suits you. You can, for example, leave a comment on the show notes page or you can use the handy feedback form again on the website. If you prefer, you can send us an email and if you're feeling very adventurous, you can even record your thoughts as an MP3 file and send that to us too. Our email address is podcast at litopia.com. Remember, in addition to being available as podcasts, our shows are also streamed live over the internet as they're recorded. This means you can listen in to all our bloopers and you can also make comments or post questions via the special live chat facility. You'll enjoy it. It's great fun. Full details on the website. Finally, if you appreciate what we're doing, then please do consider giving us some mild financial support to cover our web hosting and bandwidth costs. It only takes a moment to click on one of the buttons to make a donation, and it will help us keep going. This is Peter Cox, thanking you for listening, and looking forward to being back with you again soon. <laughs>